Hello, and welcome to Were the Kids Alright, a podcast where we analyze the books we read as kids. My name is Jacqueline, and I use they, them, or she, her pronouns. And my name is Sophie, and I use she, her pronouns. We're two part-time puzzle makers who read a lot as children and now have thoughts. We will get into spoilers, so that's your warning for that. Content warnings for this week are kidnapping, running away from guardians, so, 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 so much of children in danger, severe injury, torture, both threat and actual, discussion of narcolepsy and, quote, the old hag, sleep-inducing drugs, threat of death, and discussion of mind control. This week, we read Mysterious Benedict Society and the Perilous Journey by Trenton Lee Stewart. This is the second book of the Mysterious Benedict Society series, and if you're wondering why we're here, don't worry. We covered the first book last year in our third episode, so check that out if you haven't already. This book picks up a year after the first book leaves off with Rennie, Sticky, Kate, and Constance in their respective homes with their respective families. They all miss each other, though, and so there's going to be a reunion and a big surprise from Mr. Benedict. But oh no! When they reach the house, Rhonda and some fun government people find out that Mr. Benedict and Number 2 have been kidnapped. They now have only a few days to find a rare narcolepsy-treating plant before Mr. Benedict and Number 2 meet a conveniently unspecified fate. The good news is that Mr. Benedict and Number 2 were planning a worldwide scavenger hunt for the kids, and they left a series of clues. Rennie, Sticky, Kate, and Constance sneak out of the house, get on a boat called a Shortcut, do their best to follow some clues, and eventually end up in Holland, but not before some lovely confrontations with Mr. Curtin's security team. Fun fact, they are called Ten Men because they have ten ways to hurt you in their briefcase, in the form of office supplies, which is fun. Milligan catches up with the children and they find the island where Mr. Benedict and Number 2 are being held. They get captured, then escape, then get captured again through a series of epic fights, and Mr. Curtin reveals that he intends to replace Mr. Benedict, regain control of the Whisperer, and use the rare plant to put people to sleep. The children have a final showdown with the Ten Men and Mr. Curtin, and then escape the island with help from Kate's Falcon, Madge, or Her Majesty the Queen, and the captain of a boat that they traveled on, who Rennie didn't initially trust, which is a whole subplot. Kate has a chance to explode Mr. Curtin and his cronies, but she chooses not to, and then they escape. But don't worry, they do not have the rare plant, only a fake, and everyone returns safe and sound, and mostly okay, except for Milligan is injured, and they're all kind of injured, but everything is good. It's a happy ending. They're on their way to recovery. (laughs) Everyone's not, like, perfectly cured by the end of the book, but it's clear that they will be fine. Yeah, this book had actual stakes. Yeah. Like, they actually portrayed what would happen if you were doing all the physical things that they were doing. Yeah, that's something I want to talk about as soon as we get through our first couple of things. So, what's your background with this book? I read it in Hungary at some point on Kindle or something. And this was your favorite one? Yes, because there was a boat, okay? And it's not like the boat was a big part of the book or the most interesting part of the book. Believe me, it's not. The final (laughs) showdown was the most interesting part for me. But there's a lot more water in this book. Yes, I really like water. I miss the ocean so, so much. And I just realized that I said worldwide scavenger hunt. No, it's just the US and Europe. Sorry about that. Yeah, I like this book and I remember a lot about it, but I didn't remember the specific plot, but I remember the fights very vividly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really remember this book that well. I don't remember when I first read it. I believe I read it a while after I read the first book. I probably read the first book and then reread the first book when I then read the second and third book Mm -hmm. because I know that I didn't read the first book and then read the second book and then read the third book but I did that my second time I read it I I believe either a two-year or a year gap in between the first book and the second book fair yeah um 
yeah, I can't say I really remembered this book, but I it felt familiar as I was reading it, you know? Where it was like, as I went through it, I was like, oh yeah, this happens. And then I know that this thing is happening next, but it wasn't like I went into it knowing exactly what happened, which I found to be a very pleasant way to read it. Um, Current impressions? Yeah. What were your impressions on this reread? Okay, so for context, I have reread this book probably once. So this is not me reading it for the first time after, yeah. but my first impression on this reread was interesting because I was once again blown away by how good this book is. Yeah. And then I also figured out why the first book is by far the best book. This book was not as thematically complicated as the first book, and it yeah. didn't have as much of a point to make. Yeah. The first book really had a point to make, and it did it so well, and it was grounded in real issues. This was like not quite magical object retrieval, but you know, they're going it's on a the important person. <laughs> it's fine that, yes, which works for me in this book. Normally, I would not like this kind of book because they're going on a quest and they're doing magical object retrieval, basically, or person <laughs> retrieval. But it works because <laughs> Mr. Benedict is a magic object. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it works because things actually happen along the way. Yeah, I agree. And also they are not with the same people the whole time. But Milligan comes in, which is cool. So there's always something to heighten the stakes and keep things interesting and not just do a build up to the end. Yeah, I completely agree. I had a very similar reaction on this reread. This, I believe this might actually be the first time I'm rereading this after reading it for the first time, honestly. It's definitely been a while since I've read it, but I got the distinct feeling that it heightened the stakes in a very good way. So good. Okay, so I was thinking about this a lot right after I finished the book. I think the way that Trent and Lee Stewart did this that like worked so effectively for me is we had all of the same characters basically yeah. from the first book, but it, instead of the executives being the big bad, it was the 10 men. Which is a new thing. <laughs> which is a new thing. And also they were kind of in the first book, but you don't really know them. There's kind of like a looming thing in the background, but now it's like, oh, this is the, the real danger. They're thing. so creepy. And Mr. Curtin is like the mastermind of the whole operation. And He's still scary, but the physical threat of the 10 men, there was more of like a brain threat, like brain sweeping mind yeah, control yeah. threat in the last one. And this one is like, oh no, these, these are very are scary. fuck you up physically. Yeah. The office supplies are so scary. They have paperclip chains, which is probably the tamest of the ones that I can describe. They have lasers, which- That will cut off your ears. Yes. They have razor sharp pencils. Oh, the pencils are awful. will whiz past you and stick into the wall. Very scary stuff. Or stick into you. Let's be real. True, true. Yeah. And they also have some sleep stuffs. And they just have a box of bees. That's what that was? Yes, it's in a box of bees. I thought it was like a scorpion or something. Do you remember when they were talking about how Milligan was getting bee stings? Oh, yes, I do. I thought it was just like there was a bee nest that he had stumbled into. <laughs> no, they no. had. Because they, they were like, talking planted. about the thing that was humming. Right. Oh, I did not put that together. Oh, that's really creepy. They're all just these well-dressed, well-groomed businessmen with cologne. And the cologne detail really freaked me out. Pause. I need to go take the things out. You don't have to pause the recording. Let me go take them out and then we'll okay, cool. this conversation. Okay, okay, so while I am in front of this microphone, Jacqueline is afraid I'm going to say some bad stuff about Rennie. I can say whatever the heck I want, and I'm going to say whatever the heck I want. I'm bad. But I am not here to trash on Rennie, okay? You were last time we talked about him. <laughs> Um, yeah, the Ten Men, like, really heightened the stakes in a very visceral, I think might be the right word, way. So clear that to picture them, they're very, very creepy. I feel like the first book, it was the kids against slightly older kids, the executives, like, that was their main threat. And now it's the kids against 
grown-ass adults. Yeah, and they were fighting with their minds. It was so cool in the last book. This one was full-on physical fights. And you you see the kids, like, they're all pushed to their physical limits. Yes, and the fights were really well-written. Yeah. They were exciting the whole way through, and they also had enough breaking points, so it wasn't, you weren't just like, oh no, they don't have time to emotionally process anything. Well, they definitely don't really process. Well, these characters aren't really emotional processors, which I'll get into. Yeah. <laughs> I will say something that I liked about the characters in this book I feel like it continues their characterization in a very natural way in that I think they feel slightly older than they did in the last book but only slightly because it's only been a year and you can clearly see the trauma kind of that they are dealing with the impact of their adventures yeah the impact of their adventures which was horrible but also they kind of liked it because they were together and they were doing a cool thing and it was like fun it's kind of like how when something is really annoying but also really fun at the same time and you're glad that it's over but you're also not glad that it's over you know uh, yeah, I would agree that the characters feel like they've appropriately grown from the experience and that they have had time to process things and are able to... They feel like different people. Mm-hmm. Well, not different people. They are still consistent. You have seen the change in Sticky really well. You see yeah. the change in Constance really well. We get a lot yes. more characterization of Constance here, which is great because there was that mystery last time, so you didn't get as much from Constance. I think Kate stays the most stagnant. No, it's Renny. I honestly do not think so. I think Kate stays the most stagnant because Rennie, we get a lot more of his like untrusting nature, which is something I wanted to bring up with his character because I think he is way more explicitly flawed in this book than he was in the first book. Since we are in his head for most of the book, we kind of get the vibe that he thinks he's in the right, but like from an outside perspective. And the characters also think he's in the right. They always turn to him for every single idea. He's always right. He's the idea person. Yes. He's always the intuition person. Can I finish what I was saying? Yes. I get that part, but I'm talking more about his distrust of people, like with him distrusting Captain Noland. He doesn't tell the other characters about that, and when he throws away the um, radio, (laughs) it was a very impulsive move. He thought that he was doing the right thing, but since he didn't explain it to his friends, they were like, what the fuck? Don't leave us in the dark. And also, they don't agree with him Mm -hmm. in that moment. They trust Captain Noland, even though he doesn't. And since we're in his head, Mm -hmm. obviously it feels like we shouldn't trust him because we're seeing from his point of view. But his character arc in this book, which I don't think quite gets resolved, like he isn't suddenly more trusting at the end. I feel like his flaws are more magnified, but it it does kind of feel like the narrative is validating his flaws. But if you look at them from an adult outside perspective, I think it is still clear that he is not right a lot of the time and like i liked that a lot it felt like he had an actual inner conflict this time more so than he did in the last book yeah okay so i agree with that and i thought that the trusting thing made a lot of sense yeah and my problem with rennie isn't so much that he's okay so yeah i had a problem with him last time because he was like perfect in every way i think his biggest flaw is that he looks down on the other kids I think it's... Mm, and he thinks yeah. he knows better than them. And I think that that is his biggest flaw, which is not fully realized by the narrative, but he yeah. clearly thinks of Sticky as knowledge recall. And yeah. um, I think that does start to change at the end of this book, where Sticky kind of becomes their driving force when yeah. they're carrying Mr. Benedict on the sled. Like, I think it starts to change, but I do think you're right, and I kind of think that that's not Rennie's fault. Like, the other kids look up to him a he's lot. He's put on a pedestal because he's the yes. most... He's the most, like, average. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So he's definitely he, not average. I think that is the wrong word to describe him. I think he is well-rounded. He's just literally described as the most average boy in every way. Like, that's literally what... That is I know. mostly a direct quote. Yeah, that's, like, how he's described it. Maybe he just looks like a really average white kid. Like, <laughs> I know kids who look like that. But I think he's the most well-rounded in terms of his gifts mm-hmm. as applied to the challenges that the kids are up against. Yeah, if but... that makes sense? He, like, expects the other kids to specialize. He turns to them only for their specific deal. He doesn't really turn to them for anything else. He takes on everything that they don't do. And I think that is definitely something that if these characters were a little bit older, they would be able to have like an actual conversation about it. But because they are kind of children and like Constance in particular, like looks up to him so much, which is Mm -hmm. perfectly understandable because she's what, like four in this book? Yeah. Or no, she's three. But I think Sticky and Kate both let Rennie take on way more responsibility. Even in the last book, I think he was doing this, obviously. Mm -hmm. He was the one who was in charge of making plans and the others acted to support him. They never put themselves out as like the idea person, if that makes sense. I mean, Rennie is supposed to be like the emotionally intelligent one, which makes sense. And I actually do, in terms of their team, I think that their team does need to have, you know, normal is a weird way to describe it, but like- No, I get it. Like, less specialized. Yeah. Yeah, who can see big pictures a little bit more. Yeah. So I think that Rennie, his existence is really good for the team. And it makes sense from that point of view why he's the point of view character. Yes, I understand. But I think from a reading standpoint, it's really boring because Rennie is literally self-insert, reader insert, and is really boring to be in the head of all the time. His trust issues were a little bit more interesting, but because he's described as average and he's kind of also put on a pedestal, it's just, it's kind of boring. And I personally found the passages that were in Kate and Constance's point of view, I don't think there was that much of Sticky. There actually was a fair amount of Sticky. <laughs> Did you not notice? I didn't point? notice because it jumped ship so many times. Fair. Um, I think I think you're completely right that Rennie, he's straight up the point of view character. Like, yeah, we don't get a lot of personality from his perspective. And I think it feels like he is the more boring character because... Well, of course we, he's the more boring character. He's supposed to be. Yeah, no, but it's also like, it's a contrast thing where like when we're in the other characters' heads, they are such strong personalities and stronger characters with stronger arcs i mean not arcs but i mean like stronger like gimmicks characterization constance has her past which is explored and kate is kate has a very strong personality which comes through when it's her point of view her point of view is mostly useful for action scenes because yeah she sees things so quickly yeah because as you said she's kind of a little bit more stagnant At least she's kind of just like emotionally stagnant. Like she's changed a lot and she seems to have grown in her abilities, but she's a little Mary Sue-ish. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in like a- A Mary Sue who is also presented as dumb academically. She's like the idealized, like strong warrior woman character almost, where she's Mm -hmm. really freaking good at like running and fighting and all that stuff. And she's not not smart. She's very inventive. I think she just comes off as not academically smart because we have Sticky right there. Yeah. And honestly, it's kind of cool to have a girl character who is like a really strong character. And who is their character who's like the go-to, like, I don't want to say muscle, but like... But yeah, no, she's like the go-to muscle. And she's smart, but she's not the smartest. She's not completely perfectly rounded, you know? Yeah. I think that might be why Rennie probably frustrates you and kind of is a little bit boring because he is the most well-rounded and all the other characters have like very clear deficiencies in just Mm -hmm. like their gimmicks in and of themselves. So boring. 
I don't think he's so boring. I think he works for what he is made to do. I don't think he should be the main character. I agree that they should all have points of view, but I would choose to focus on either Sticky or Kate, to be honest. But I feel like that would give us an incomplete narrative. Yeah, okay, so for its omniscient style, it makes sense to have Rennie as the main character, but I would love to give Rennie at least a more interesting backstory. That's fair. Or some sort of mystery. I proposed last time that Rennie should have betrayed them, and I agree that that should have happened still, because I think that that would have been a really... It's really close to it. Yeah, he does. I think that that is a really interesting thing to wrestle with, or maybe... Sticky betrays them and then Rennie deals with that. But it's well, more that's kind of what Sticky had to deal with emotionally this time where like him falling asleep and not paying attention is the reason why the 10 men are able to sneak up on them. Yeah, so I just want Rennie to have more purpose in the book and I... That's fair. He needs to do more than just use his intuition to discover things. And the thing that I did like, though, is the way that the book set up character things that were going to happen to the characters in the book. It set up the trust issues really well. It set up Kate realizing that you shouldn't kill people yeah. <laughs> really well. And um, Sticky has the whole humility plot. Yeah. So the interesting thing with Sticky in this book is he starts off the book really cocky a little oh, bit. Gosh. I think it's in part because his parents aren't letting him use his brain gifts at all. Like not any, yeah, not yeah. Anymore. Like they are very explicitly trying to not let him do that and trying to force him almost to be a normal kid, which yeah. I think is less good for him. Yeah, <laughs> I would also hate Sticky if I was in a classroom. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I He's love so Sticky. I love Sticky because I'm on the outside looking in, and yeah. also it seems like if you're in this situation and you are also have your own special thing, it's probably more... Tolerable. Yeah, because <laughs> you're probably going to be annoying yourself. Um, <laughs> True. Yeah, no, but it's like, he isn't allowed to stretch his brain. Like, his parents are coddling him throughout this entire book, and I think it's good that they have realized that their parenting fucked him up, but they seem very much like the type of parents who have swung too far in the other direction. They gave yeah. him too much independence beforehand, and now he does not have nearly enough, and he's being stifled a little bit. Yeah. Another thing that I do want to say about all the characters, the four kids in general, mm -hmm. is that... I have talked over and over again on this podcast about how I want more from characters and how I want people to have arcs and I want people to grapple with the serious things that they are being put through. Yeah. For some books, I totally agree with that. But I am definitely starting to reflect a little bit more on when books need it and when books don't need it. And mm -hmm. this book already has so much packed into it. I yeah. wouldn't change a thing about it character-wise, except for making Brennan more interesting. Yeah, I think maybe if Rennie had like a little bit more of a mysterious backstory that could help. Yeah. Like maybe there's a mystery with like what the fuck happened to his parents. Yeah, also I don't need as much from characters because it's multi-POV. Yeah, and I also think one of the strengths of this book over the first one is it went into the other characters' heads more often. Yeah, I did enjoy that. Especially with Constance. Yes, Constance is a very interesting point of view. It's really hard to write really, really, really young <laughs> characters. and Yeah. There's probably a reason why we didn't get much of her point of view in the first book because... There's that mystery. Though. Yeah, there was the mystery. Yeah. They didn't... Trent Lee Stewart didn't want to reveal that too quickly. Yeah. But now that we have that mystery solved, now the new mystery is like she kind of seems like she's psychic and she's developing those abilities. Yeah, okay. So there's a level of believability mm -hmm. in this universe. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think of Stonetown, etc. as weird backwards New England and it doesn't have as much of a set place and time. Oh. Yeah, I actually have thoughts about 
place in yes. time that this takes place. Okay, but because enough of it is grounded in maybe not realistic skills, but like real things that people can have that are just exaggerated yeah. for the kids. The psychic stuff is a little <laughs> bit too far into the magic powers end of things, and this is science fiction. Please give me a science fiction like thing. This is it's a little bit too far into telepathy Fantasy. or Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Yeah. Because like with Kate and everything, her like strength and speed and all that, like my suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. is able to hold on for that. Yeah. Constance, they really try and push the whole thing where, oh, she's just recognizing patterns. It's yeah. like, no, that's not what it feels like. It feels like she's psychic. I do think that setting Constance up to be the most prodigy of the prodigies is a yeah. cool thing because she's in still in development so you can do yeah, that successfully yeah. but i wonder if trenton lee stewart after the last book where constance ends up saving the day in the last book and that is well set up mm-hmm. but after that the way that she saved the day is no longer as interesting in terms of her special thing mm-hmm. like her like thing was, was being stubborn yes it was and the s- fact that she was so young and stubborn that she saved the day yeah and so i think that trenton lee stewart was looking for an interesting thing for her. Right. And yeah. went down the psychic path because that's something that they don't have yet. True, true. And I honestly think, you know, you can just let Constance be Constance, okay? I do love how she is still a bratty little kid who writes terrible poetry mm-hmm. um, and is, like, incredibly messy. And she tries really, really hard to act older than she is because she's around these older kids and, like, wants to be able to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. But I loved how Kate always carries her on her back pretty much all the time when they're in danger because it's yeah. like Kate's faster and they make Constance's um, shortcomings. Uh, her friends like make up for it yeah. very actively, but also like by not making it a big deal. Rennie in particular, I think takes on very much a care- like a caring role mm-hmm. in this book for her where he's so acutely aware at times of her emotional state and he knows when he's like said something wrong mm-hmm. to like upset her and he's like i don't want to do that yeah i'm kind of wondering what they were doing taking a three-year-old along <laughs> yeah well i mean these kids are not normal so well, they're bonded together so yeah, they are like if they're bonded. going to sneak out they're going to sneak out but i feel like that they are a little bit detached from reality in terms of the fact that three-year-olds are usually not people you want in life-or-death situations. Yeah, Constance is really the character that stretches reality the most Yeah, in this and also Constance is three, so yeah. any big life event that's going to happen early on, it's going to have a huge impact, so maybe don't take her on a journey with evil office men and really The high person stakes. that she cares about the most in life-or-death danger. Yeah, and <laughs> minors in Europe completely alone. <laughs> Um, is there anything else we want to say about the kids right now? Or do we want to talk about some of the other characters? No, I'm ready. We can talk about more characters. Yeah, I think I'm looking at the list of there characters aren't on really, Wikipedia. There aren't a lot of characters. It's in this not book. like that interesting to discuss the other characters because the focus is really on the kids. Yeah. But something that I will say about Milligan is yeah. Milligan is such a badass. He's so good. And <laughs> even though I thought that the father reveal was really cringy in the last one because it was very convenient. Fair. You know, because there wasn't that cringy reveal in this one, I liked the Kate 
Milligan, my father-daughter stuff. My favorite part of Milligan trying to be a dad is when mm-hmm. he had to like be stern with the kids. <laughs> and they're just like, okay, Milligan. And they're mm-hmm. just like, you know, fingers crossed behind the back type of thing. They're going to disobey him type of thing. Yeah, and then <laughs> Milligan is like, don't you dare disobey me again, which I and made them promise. And I actually thought that was really cool that they actually followed that promise for the most part. That was really smart on their part because... Milligan knows what he's doing. He's the adult in the situation. And he's he knows, trying to protect them. And he knows these kids so well that, like, he knows that they're going to continue to put themselves in danger. And he does kind of give in to them. But he recognizes that the best way to keep these kids safe is to keep them near him. So, with Milligan. Yeah. I really appreciated how... So the kids in danger last time, they were li- deliberately putting the kids in danger in a way that felt manipulative and kind of messed up. Yeah. In this one, they are actively trying to keep the kids out of it. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. And I also thought it was cool how they set up how the kids did have to be involved because literally there was no other option. Yeah, because the entire thing was designed for them. Yeah, that was really good setup. I love when the pieces click together. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Also because the ten men are pretty bad and unbeatable and love how there's that whole part that's like there will be one man left standing and it it wasn't wasn't Milligan. Ugh, that part gives me shivers every time. Yeah, and I also like how this is an extremely violent battle and the way that it was described without going into too much detail. Yeah. It like gets across what is happening in the scene and how hard the fight was while not being too graphic or explicit and still keeping it within the realm of children's fiction, you know? Yeah. When I was saying in my summary that Mr. Benedict and number two would meet an unspecified fate, I meant with that that they don't ever explicitly threaten death until towards the end. Yeah. And even then it's more implied. It's like, I will dispose of you. Yeah. Or let's see if I can keep you around. Yeah. And their threat of death is definitely there, but it's not explicit in terms of people actually saying, I will kill you if you don't do this. And honestly, I think that makes it even spookier, the fact that it's unsaid, because like the kids don't know what danger their friends are in. I I feel like they do. But it's like kind of those times when um, Rennie would just like imagine the worst possible thing and he was trying to stop imagining the worst possible thing, but he couldn't Mm -hmm. get his brain to stop, you know? Yeah. I thought those were really, this kid's going to develop anxiety. And Rennie's kind of the chill one in the group. Well, Sticky already (laughs) has anxiety. Yeah. I think Kate will never develop it because she seems to be immune of like negative emotions a little bit. Kate would have some toxic positivity going on. I think she already does. Because I recently watched a video about this plane crash Mm -hmm. in, was it Brazil? I don't know where it was. So they were stranded, but some of them survived, which was really unexpected. So there were a bunch of people who were really positive. Oh yeah, we are going to get rescued. So then they didn't they weren't realistic about their actual situation, and so ah. they ended up being defeated a lot quicker than everyone else. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But meanwhile, in the beginning, their positivity was really helpful to get people to like find the will to survive. Yeah, I feel like this book kind of did a good job balancing positivity as like a, a thing to help drive them to move forward, but also like they have to be realistic about what they're doing and weigh all of their options. I thought that was showcased really well when they were trying to escape the island. Yeah. 
Oh, the other thing with Milligan is after his fight with the Ten Men, he jumps down into a ravine and he's presumed dead by the Ten Men that he is left fighting because um, (laughs) it's a 50-foot drop. It is suspiciously similar to a scene that I wrote. Are you saying that Trenton Lee Stewart stole I'm saying that I stole it. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) It is suspiciously similar to an attempted assassination where the character's like, oh, see ya, and jumps off a cliff. That's funny. Yeah, but anyways, Milligan ends up in the water. Milligan lands lands in the mud, and he breaks almost every bone in his body. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think that was another good way that we were shown the heightened stakes because like he gets pretty badly beat up and injured in the first book as well but this is more extreme this is like oh no is he still alive it's like is he going to survive this so the kids find him while they're dragging an unconscious mr benedict to the water so that they can try and escape and milligan orders the kids to leave him behind but then he passes out and luckily once he's passed out and the kids are trying to debate what to do and how to save him as well because obviously they're not going to leave him behind mr benedict wakes up and is like ah i see what we must do yeah like swap me and milligan and we'll continue (laughs) i really liked that little scene and it was like oh good they're gonna save him and milligan is this complete badass spy but he also needs to rely on the people in his life Mm -hmm. just as much as the next person which i think is a really good theme in this book or in all of these books where like the kids have to rely on each other the adults have to rely on the kids the kids have to rely on the adults yeah everyone's specific situation has real impact on what actually happens Mm -hmm. injuries have an actual impact on people's ability to function yes yeah and when they were having trouble climbing down or up wherever they were whatever they were doing when they were i actually felt how hard that was yeah it wasn't like oh yeah they were walking and yeah it was hard but the way that it built Mm -hmm. to where it got harder and harder and then sticky was just being amazing and and like even kate was exhausted yeah that was just so well written yes oh my gosh the the writing well written children's books it built up the tension so perfectly yeah Uh, um there's not a lot of other characters to talk about mr curtain's still evil yeah um oh something i did find interesting in this book this isn't related to mr Mm -hmm. curtain to be clear (laughs) um i am jumping topics yeah um i found it really interesting how the kids all referred to mr benedict and number two as like their friends and the language of friends was used the entire time where it's like we have to save our friends um and even mr benedict like calls everyone friends well what else are they i know i just i thought it was kind of cute because it's like oh they're picking up mr benedict's habit of calling everyone friends yeah i still think that mr benedict's way of recruiting them was mad creepy i mean yeah of course it was the thing is in this book you can put it in the past a little bit more yeah i really appreciate how in this book it wasn't the adults sending the kids on a mission yes it was the kids exactly choosing to go yeah originally the plan was for Rhonda and milligan to go with the kids and be there to like support them yeah like mr benedict still made sure that they had enough money at every stop along the way oh yeah which i thought was a really good detail to include because it was definitely Mm. something that i was thinking about i was like yes these kids do not they don't have enough for like a cab and then places to stay (laughs) that were pre-arranged yeah yeah that was really good yeah that was a smart way to awful do the plot i think yes 
Oh, something that I think we should talk about a little bit is the setup for this book, where we're kind of told that Mr. Benedict, his parents, before they... They kind of hinted at they attempted some experiment that went wrong. Yes. Or they were killed because of their science stuff. But anyways, they had found a cure for narcolepsy. Potentially. A potential cure for narcolepsy. And then Mr. Benedict was going to go research it as well. And yes. we find out at the end of the book, the plant, this is the rare plant that Sophie mentioned in the yeah. intro, the plant has been um, extinct for... Decimal by another plant yeah like by a plant that looks very similar Just but very is hardier sad. yeah it's kind of like when in a forest a certain plant will like overtake all the other plants because it's stronger and then the entire plot happens with mr benedict and mr Curtin both searching for this plant and then the plant isn't even there anymore yeah. that's just wild and then mr benedict he just moves on because it feels to me that he sees his narcolepsy as just a thing that he lives with and it's not something that is a hindrance in some ways mm -hmm. but it also like i feel like he would say it gives him a different perspective on the world but everyone who loves him is obviously like god i wish we had had this cure because he's always in danger of hurting himself every time and he the falls nightmares asleep. and the nightmares yes yeah so we didn't really get this in the last book but in this book we get descriptions of the nightmares that mr benedict has yeah. when he sleeps and we are told about his sleep paralysis that he yeah, sometimes Yeah, I has. watched a documentary on sleep paralysis. It was a really good documentary. If you have a chance to watch that documentary that I don't know the name of, watch it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know enough about narcolepsy to know if the portrayal was positive or negative or accurate or inaccurate. Same. I assume it's probably some level of inaccurate. I trust that Trenton Lee Stewart did his research. Yeah. But yeah. I don't actually know, but I did like that it was consistent. Yeah. Okay, I'm on the narcolepsy Wikipedia page right now. I think that Trenton Lee Stewart did a good job getting the overall vibe of narcolepsy, kind of, mm -hmm. um, and building it into Mr. Benedict's life instead of it just being like a thing that only affects him sometimes. It consistently shows up in both yeah. good moments and bad moments. It's not something that only shows up in bad moments to like create more danger or only shows up in good moments to like show that this character still has flaws, you know? Yeah. It's also kind of cool as a uh, not narcolepsy specifically, but the twin situation. It adds layers to Mr. Curtin. Yes. And it also la adds layers to the relationship between Mr. Benedict and Mr. Curtin. Because Mr. Benedict seems to feel really sorry for Mr. Curtin. I think it was a really good way to flesh out Mr. Curtin's character without like actually fleshing him out, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we don't need his motivation and backstory or whatever because we get enough of it yeah. to like understand while still being like, ah, this guy is evil. I do have a problem with Mr. Curtin's evil henchmen being evil without much nuance there, though there is kind of some nuance to SQ, but that's basically it, and SQ is kind of played for laughs. Yeah. I do have a problem with that because we know from the last book that a lot of the executives were kidnapped yeah, and brainwashed. I was about to bring that up because I think that the executives, we know why they are the way that they are. Yeah. I definitely agree with you about the 10 men. I would like to know why they are so soulless. Are oh. they also brainwashed? I so okay I have a theory so in the book the 10 men were of course extremely creepy and they kept calling their victims by animal names like chicky and ducky a lot of birds a lot of birds and I have a feeling that they do that deliberately to dehumanize their victims so they do mm. not feel as much yeah when they hurt them 
That makes a lot of sense. But with the Ten Men, I got the feeling that it was like contractor soldier vibe from them. Like a mercenary, sort of. Like contractor security people. Oh, like people who were paid a lot of money to like be security guards. Yeah, or also be soldiers. That's a mercenary. No, no, they were in like the Iraq War or something like that. I watched a documentary. Yeah, they're like... That's like the third time I've said I watched a documentary in this episode. I'm sorry. Foreign contract soldiers. Private military companies that then have contract soldiers. Yeah, there's actually a really good leverage episode that deals with the issue of contract um, soldiers and just like the shit that they get up to. Yeah, sometimes. I think Madam Secretary also deals with that, which would make sense. That would. Yeah. Anyways, watch leverage. Yeah, <laughs> I am still pretty convinced that Trenton Lee Store is a heavy socialist. And I am sorry, Trenton Lee Store, if you are not and you are extremely offended by this. Okay, wait. I have his Wikipedia page here. So he grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he went to Hendricks College, which is for I, his bachelor's. Let's see if that's, I believe I think, it's a private liberal arts yes, college. Yes, we found this out last time. <laughs> oh, you're so right. It's been a minute. So he went to a private liberal arts college, pretty similar to us. Yes. He received his master's of fine arts in creative writing from the University of Iowa. Um, he spent a lot of time in the Midwest and Midwest in Arkansas. Yeah. So it seems like he got a liberal arts education. So it's very possible that he is a socialist. Yeah. And I'm also, there. it was the last book where there was the free market is always free. Yeah. In, in terms of the brainwashing. And also everyone could be bought off in this book. Uh-huh. It was really interesting how there was so much of people getting bought off with money. Yeah. Or diamonds. That scene with the boat guy, whatever his name that was. That was so creepy. That was, was so, so unnecessarily weird. It was so fucked up. Like, that was the scene that really made me feel like Rennie has the potential to be an evil guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he straight up manipulated that man, used his fears against him in a way that was very reminiscent of Mr. Curtin. Yes. And I feel like it kind of played into his fears of which brother is he more like, you know? His whole thing is he should trust no one, which is an attitude that turns you into a villain. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, As someone right. who trusts very few people. <laughs> so fair you saying you're a villain. No, but one of Rennie's best qualities is his empathy. But if he's not trusting people, that messes with his empathy. Yes. That was done better in this book than it was in the first book. I really want him to go over to Mr. Curtin's side. I don't even care if it's a bad... That just, like, doesn't make sense. I just and want... it would not... It would Ready be like, villain arc, please. I don't like it. <laughs> Everyone is corruptible. I mean, like, yes, but I think the interesting thing about Rennie is he knows he is corruptible, and he actively works to not be corrupted. So does my dictator character, but the dictator is corrupt by definition. Okay, well, that's your story. This is Trenton Lee Stewart's story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with his. <laughs> yeah, but Rennie has got a dark side, and I we see it. It's so much explicitly. more interesting. Also, throwing the radio out the yeah, and that kind of plays into it too. Thinking that he's the only one who can make decisions, trusting his instincts too much. Yeah, yeah. And how the final resolution of this plot was, he had to trust Captain Nolan, a character that he very explicitly does not trust. I really liked how that was set up in mm-hmm. that you were kind of thinking like, oh, is there going to be a reveal? Because Rennie's usually right about people. Yeah. And then it turned out that Captain Nolan was just being a stupid idiot who was favoring 
favoring Rennie. Not even that he was a stupid idiot, it's that he was just like an incredibly stressed adult who is trying to keep his job under incredibly stressful circumstances. Yeah. And like... The keep it between <sighs> us is extremely creepy though. That's true, yeah. The way that he's written, and again, we're seeing him from Rennie's point of view, so he comes off as less trustworthy and creepier than he probably thinks that he is. And I really like how that was done. There's so much about trust in this book. They yeah. have to trust Milligan. Milligan says, you need to do what I say. Yeah. That's another thing because they kept disobeying Milligan. Milligan's like, mm -hmm. I know what I'm Yeah. Please um, one of the other things with Captain Nolan is I legitimately had a couple of moments in like the middle of the book where mm -hmm. I was like, I know that he's not actually going to betray them, but is he going to betray them? Mm -hmm. That would have been kind of cool if that had happened. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. I liked that he didn't, but then he yeah. was still kind of a creepy man. I kind of liked that, oh yeah, you can be loyal and you can do the right thing, but you can still be creepy as hell. Yeah, that's true. With but terrible I coffee, apparently. <laughs> I also really like how with Captain Nolan, we start to see a little bit more of Mr. Benedict's backstory. True. Where we find out that he fought in a war and was in, in intelligence and he was a code breaker. That was a cool detail and explains yeah. a lot. Yeah, it explains why Mr. Benedict is so highly trusted by government officials. Makes sense. Why can't they destroy the whispers? Oh, they use it to restore people's memories. Oh, yeah. never mind. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, okay, wait, actually, the whole, like, him fighting in a war and being codebreaker leads perfectly into my theories about when this book is set time-wise. Yes. I have two theories. I think either it is supposed to be set in World War One, not World War Two, like, directly after World War One, kind of. This book? Yeah. No. Let me finish. They're wearing, like, jeans. They had jeans back then, Sophie. Jeans what? have been around for, like, a hundred years. Not that widespread, though. You don't see people... No. <laughs> okay, you could have touched upon so many things and you went directly for jeans. Okay. <laughs> no, okay, but here's some things to back it up. Uh-huh. They travel by boat, and it's the fastest boat of their time. And they also mentioned that they could fly, but they don't because it would be more expensive. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And we're supposed to get kind of like an out of time vibe from this book, which I think is really well done. So I think if we aren't talking like after either post-World War One or post-World War Two, because Mr. Benedict being a code breaker only makes sense with one of those two wars. World War Two Could also happen in World War One. I. I think World War Two because there would have been talk of the war after that. That's fair. And also... Jacqueline, what? your timeline is way too early because the decades up until... Oh, would that mean that the kids are like in World War... Oh, yeah. No, I kind of see what you mean. It's way too early. Okay, but... I was thinking the 70s or something. That kind of makes sense. Whatever. But my second theory that I am more convinced of is this is a post-apocalyptic world. I think something happened to technology in this world and they have super advanced but also super behind technology. It just progressed differently from how ours mm -hmm did so like they still have super developed communities and all that and cities exist and everything but everything is like weirdly named and we have super villains mm -hmm. i think yeah. that's my theory at this point because i like that better <laughs> nice my theory is that it takes place in the 1990s specifically because age wise it makes sense yeah that's fair and also clothing so wise it makes sense and technology wise it also makes sense because it's before smartphones and cell phones aren't as much of a thing it's like you have a flip phone if you're rich okay jeans were invented in 1873 yeah but when did they become widespread i don't I mean, 1873 is when 
Levi. I thought like, they were more of like a, they became popular in the 50s or something like that. that or maybe the That 40s. doesn't mean that people weren't wearing them beforehand or that they weren't widespread. They became like a fashion thing later on, but they were like a work thing first. Okay. There are a few details that take away the time and the place. First of all, Sticky's glasses are called spectacles, which is kind of confusing. Old timey. Okay, okay. Here's what you're thinking of. From the 1960s onwards, jeans became common among various youth subcultures and subsequently young members of the general population. But they were originally designed for minors, as in like the people who yeah. rocks, rock people. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't know how to explain this. You're talking about trolls from Frozen? No, I'm talking about <laughs> miners, like coal miners, but okay. probably not coal. Maybe coal, I don't know. Anyways, it became common with the youth. Also, yes. I was just directly quoting from the Wikipedia page on jeans. Yes. Now we can end this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I think your post-apocalyptic theory mm -hmm. is really cool. I like it because it has like a similar vibe. Okay, it's not a similar vibe, but also I'm just go with me for a sec on this. Okay. Hunger Games, where it's, okay, I see your face. I said, give me a second. <laughs> Go with me for just a second. I'm thinking more City of Ember. Sort of. Okay, in the way that I'm thinking of, both of those kind of work. Mm -hmm. Where it takes our current day society, or the society that this book was written during, and it fast forwards it and kind of twists it around mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for a culture where like they've lost parts of it and they've held on to some things, but other things have gone away, you know? Mm -hmm. Where like Hunger Games is very much opposed to apocalyptic thing but even just like the names they're like different spellings of common names today that have just like changed over time mm -hmm. it feels kind of similar to that it's a similar thing with city of ember they have things from a culture but they have to use it in different ways yeah i think that there's just heavy new england vibes for, yes <laughs> they're just heavy new england vibes and i can't really explain why but there's something about it that reminds me of massachusetts the Stonetown harbor or whatever it is isn't it stonewall Stone Town. It's not Stonewall. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's definitely not Stonewall, Jacqueline. <laughs> You're right. It's definitely Stone Town. <laughs> um, yeah, it's Stone Town. There is weird capitalism commentary a lot of the time in these books. I think you're right with what you said earlier, where like the first book has stronger thematic yeah. um, sayings or Which whatever. I did like better. Like it makes for a better book objectively. I guess. I think that book, its strength lies more in the themes. And this book, the themes are kind of sacrificed in order for the characters to shine a little bit more. The characters are not shining more. But I the plot is shining. It's a more the, intricate The plot. atmosphere that was created in the first book with the characters introduced by the plot in the first book yes. are shining more. But not the characters themselves. They are shining exactly the same. Oh my god. Well, I think they're stronger than they were in the last book. I think that they are stronger in that the setup and the resolution for the particular things that Trenton Lee Stewart chooses to focus on with each character in this book, I think that that is stronger. That's what I'm talking about. Like yeah. Like their character arcs. But they're not actually like deeper characters. Oh no, I, I don't I don't expect them to be, honestly. Yeah. They're children characters in a children's book. I think when I say that they're stronger, it's not that they're deeper. It's just yeah. that we spend more time in their emotional complexity. Again, I don't need them to be deeper, but I just need Rennie to be on the same level as constant sticky and Kate. This and is something that we're not. just going to agree to disagree on. Rennie, oh my gosh. If you say that he's boring again, I'm going to explode. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Rennie reminds me of Dink from A to C Mysteries. 
I've read exactly one of those books and I read it out loud to the middle schoolers in the program that I help out with. Yes. So there's Dink, Josh, and Ruth Rose. So they are a trio and they kind of all get their points of view, but Dink is clearly the main character. Mm -hmm. And Dink is always the one, even though everyone finds clues along the way, Dink is always the one to figure the mystery out, mm. which annoys me to no end. That is something that annoys me about Rennie. That is something that annoys me about Percy. Okay. I will say for this book in particular, I think it is well done that Rennie is not the only one solving the mysteries. Like he solves a lot of the riddles, but Constance also solves a lot of the puzzles. It's also just, why does he have to be put on this pedestal by other characters? It's mostly the pedestal that he's put on by other characters, not the author. Yeah. But by other characters. Exactly. Yeah. It's really annoying. And I think he is starting to realize that he's he's 11 years old in this book. I don't think he fully realizes what is kind of happening. He realizes that he's kind of the leader of his friends because they look to him to be the leader. <laughs> no, he's not even the oldest. Well, Kate's the oldest and let's be real, she is not well-rounded enough to be the leader of this little group, despite what she would like to think is true. But I think that as he grows older, he will realize that he is not better than anyone else. He has just been pushed into a leadership position. And just because he's a strong leader doesn't mean he's good at everything. So we talk about the world building. I think it sets up the next book well because Mr. Curtin escaped. Oh, we should talk about how Kate lets them go. That was cool. That was cool. And I don't know if you remember, but but in the very first episode, I had a whole kill Mr. Curtin mm. thing going on. Of course on. you did. I still think that they should have killed Mr. Curtin. But when the Whisperer was the problem, because mm -hmm. the Whisperer was tied to his voice and it was literal mind control, mm -hmm. when he doesn't have the Whisperer, there's no reason to kill him. I mean, he's still incredibly powerful okay. and influential and <laughs> he deserves to be locked up. I'm talking about morally. Yeah, no, I know. And I really appreciate the way that the book handles that moral debate where like the kids are a little bit more more willing to kill and hurt other mm -hmm. people because they're children and they don't understand the emotional impact that that will have yeah. on them. But Milligan very explicitly says like it is different when you are the one doing it and we don't hurt other people beyond what is necessary. Like we do not kill other people because that makes us more like them. Yeah. That's an argument that I usually hate in books like this mm -hmm. where I'm like but like the guy is evil just kill him. He's trying to kill you. Why don't you just kill him? But yeah. I think I like the way that it plays out as a theme in this book and like a learning thing for the kids yeah it works i personally like when books have this argument i like how there's always another option there's yeah. always another thing to do besides kill them and sometimes in some books it has consequences which is very you know brain messy yeah but i think in terms of current day issues especially with police brutality Mm -hmm. The fact that there is always another option. Mm -hmm. Killing is not the only option. I did think something very interesting in this book is the part of the kids being really um, distrusting of authority is that the police were explicitly uh, shown to not be the people that they wanted to turn to for help. And government officials, they explicitly did not want the government yes. involved because Mr. Curtin had like agents or whatever. While also being willing to use them as leverage when they could leverage them in terms of Mr. Curtin is escaping the yeah. police. So was still threatened yes. by the police. Oh, 
Oh, yes. Threatened by the government. Government. Yeah. Mr. Benedict was still aligned with the government enough. But so he also he could... doesn't just like give in to the government's wants willy nilly. Yeah. Well, also, if Mr. Benedict was not aligned with the government, they would see him as a threat and they would go after him. Yeah. So it is in his best interest to at least pretend to be aligned with them. Yes. Which I think is shown pretty well at the beginning of this book where like we get told that he is only using the Whisperer to help people recover their memories and he refuses to use it as a weapon mm-hmm. against people. Oh, I just realized something. Mm-hmm. This book has to be on the East Coast because they take a boat. Yeah, they cross the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, it has to be on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom. We'll move right along from that. <laughs> oh, this book is so good. Okay. It is. Does it hold up though? I think in it holds up. critical analysis. Yeah, it holds up surprisingly well. There aren't any overtly problematic messages in this yes. book. Yes. The only thing is that the 10 men are all men, which is a kind of a stupid detail. Yeah, but some of the executives are girls. Well, yes. So there's still that. And the government officials that we see at the beginning, there are both women and men in positions of power. Um, I don't know if we see any women sailors on um, Mm -hmm. the shortcut, which is Captain Nolan's boat. I don't personally like that part. That there are not women. Yes. Yeah. But the 10 men don't bother me as much because to me, it is much more believable to me that there would be fewer women or non-men in a position of just such horrible pain and destruction. I agree. I wouldn't be surprised if they were clones and Mr. Curtin was cloning them. Shit. I don't think that's actually a thing, but I, I don't wouldn't think so either. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember what the first book said about recruiters and like how the recruiters become recruiters because the recruiters are the 10 men. Oh gosh. I don't remember if the first book said anything about them, but this book certainly does not. The 10 men are such good side villains and i like how they get like actual personalities well not really personalities but like we get Mm. names for them and they have their like different weapons that they're really good with i thought that was like a pretty cool detail that fleshes out the evil side of this story Mm -hmm. in a way that like yeah most authors wouldn't take the time to do i thought that so in terms of writing yeah this book was very well done the one thing that i would say that bothered me were the dialogue markers what do you mean? So dialogue markers are basically ways of showing what a character is doing in a conversation ah, and showing mm-hmm. who is talking. Mm-hmm. And what bothered me is every single time someone bit their tongue. <laughs> there was so notice. much tongue biting in this book. Mm-hmm. And it's not as bad as the author of like Daughter of Whatever and Ashes. I have no idea what you're talking about. The one where the king, they become like, I think they're that, trafficked. I think I know the one for the talking. king. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not as bad as people licking their lips in that one mm-hmm. but there's so much tongue biting and tongue biting is extremely painful and i don't understand how anyone would voluntarily do it i get wanting to be more original than cheek biting and lip biting well if you're just doing a gentle bite of your tongue to stop yourself from saying anything i've done that before i have not okay well it is a thing that happens and that people do but every character does it yeah that's a little bit odd And there was a talk at the very end about collective tongue biting. Like, I think that was the actual phrase used. Well, we don't know if they're actually all physically biting their tongues or if it's just a figure of speech. Well, it's a vibe. And then in terms of other dialogue markers, what I liked is that you don't really notice the awkward blank person said, blank person said, blank person said. It really sets up a conversation and then it's easy to tell who's talking without getting the constant like blank said, blank said, blank said. But also in general, the one line descriptors in between 
between dialogue to show what a character is doing. Long passages were great. People going from one person talking to another, that was also great. But anytime it paused and had one line, I paused to take a sip of water. And okay. as I was saying, <laughs> okay. that's how it goes. Um, I think for me, I didn't really notice that sort of thing just because this is such like a plot heavy book that it was a little bit hard for me to focus on the writing in and of itself beyond the fact that like it was well written and scenes carried the tension that they needed to. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, Sophie and I both listened to the audiobook version of this, uh, which was an interesting time. It was read by a very old man. We don't know how old the man is, Jacqueline. <laughs> he sounded old. <laughs> he just sounded older than, than an 11 year old Someone boy. would usually be reading an audiobook from from the point of view of a 12 year old. Yes. Oh, bothered me less once I got used to the omniscient narrative. Yeah, like because I read the audiobook, the particulars of the writing kind of just flowed over me. Yeah. And I just kind of, you know, you get the vibe. Yeah, I did read the ebook for part of it. Ah, okay. I have a really hard time with ebooks because I don't do well when I'm reading on screens, which is why I usually go for the audiobook. Though I do have a library card now, so maybe I'll get a physical book one day, but the ebook definitely sounded way different in my head when I was reading. Mm. That's fair. Ronnie sounded even blander. In the audiobook? No, in my head. In your head? <laughs> well, then maybe it's good that you listen to the audiobook for most of it. Um, there's probably a point in there about how, like, the way that Renny is written is, like, it could be read as very bland, but, like, you can also inject personality into words sometimes. I mean, the fan audio of... Percy Jackson? Yeah, that exactly. gave it a voice. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah. Do you have any fan fiction takes? Ooh, fan fiction takes. Let's see. Hmm. I'm really excited for us to one day read the third book whenever yeah. we get around to it, maybe next year. <laughs> I just want to point out that if they had killed Mr. Curtin in the first book, none of this would be an issue. And this could have been a fun adventure where they tried to find a plan and then turned out the plan didn't exist and then they went home sad. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have gotten all those awesome fight scenes that we were talking yes, about earlier. But from a in-world perspective, not from a book perspective. Yeah, that's fair. There was so much reason to just kill Mr. Curtin and not bother with the kids not bother with anything just get close oh, enough to okay, freaking okay. kill mr curtain because mr curtain powers the whisperer yeah and no one else can do it but mr benedict and mr benedict is obviously not going to do it for global mind control though i personally wouldn't want to have that power in mr benedict's hands but well, also i wouldn't is. want it in the government hands either so you know what there isn't a good option here yeah for a second, I thought you were advocating for having the children kill Mr. Curtin in the first book. And I was just like, no. I don't think we should, would, would want no, that. No, we are not recruiting random kids to be assassins. That is a plot for several other books that... There is actually a really good anime that has that plot, sort of. I'm, I'm sure. It seems, it's a very common plot line. It's called Assassination Classroom. There's this monster that's going to blow up the entire Earth at yes. the end of the year. And the kids have to try and assassinate their teacher. And they're like the failing class of the school. Yeah. So it's like a way to like motivate them and get them interested it's it's very well done i would recommend it watch mm -hmm. assassination classroom the dub is really good yeah so at most i think that if they were going to recruit kids they just recruit kids to get close to the institute to give milligan Intel. or whoever access to kill mr curtain i mean yeah that was kind of the original intent like the kids weren't supposed to save the day they yeah. were supposed to just get info but they really should just killed it, morally it makes sense after the whisper is gone it doesn't morally make sense to kill mr curtain but i mean the whisper still exists they haven't destroyed it yet so it still kind of makes sense for okay to kill mr curtain do you think they should destroy the whisperer i think after 
Mr. Benedict does all of the work he can do to get people's um, memories back, then yes, they should destroy it. What I would do is search for another way to restore people's memories and see if you can replicate the memory restoring properties of the Whisperer without... And I know that he modified it, but you can always modify it back. And the thing is... But like the thing is, if they created something that just had the memory retrieval part, you could always modify that to have the mind control part, you know? Yeah, and also... If it can be built once, it can be built again. It would have been better if it had never been built in the first yes. place. But we're past that. If it can be a weapon against other whispers, maybe it could be like a zero-sum game to use political theory, like, you know, nuclear war. Sure. I honestly would choose to destroy it, and it kind of sucks because people's memories, and I would definitely try, I would probably put a five-year limit on it and then destroy it after five years. That's fair. Because I mean, it's, only it's been one too year. dangerous of a machine to keep around. Mm-hmm. And it could easily fall into the wrong hands. That's fair. I'm glad that only one person can power it, but that's another thing where there's always a loophole. You can always modify that if you know the way. So, do you have any fanfiction takes? I just want to know more about that girl Sticky dated. Sticky dated a girl? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, you're right! <laughs> she it didn't go well. No. No, no none of that ever, sh which is great. It was just a passing dating mm -hmm. thing where the girl broke up with Sticky because he's was actually really annoying. Unsurprising. Yeah. He's got some growing to do before he'll be a good boyfriend. To be fair, he is 11. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, shall we move on to ratings and conclusions? Yes. Um. So, my rating of this book is probably, honestly, I'll give it a 5 out of 5. If I was going off of your scale, I would probably have to give it a 4 out of 5, but I love this book a what lot. What would you take off the star for? I don't know, it's not a perfect book. I gave non-perfect books 5 stars. Yeah, but going on your Goodreads scale. On my Goodreads scale, yes. I took off half a star for Harbor Me because of the foreshadowing. I, it made me cringe. That's the only thing I took off for. Okay, fine. On every scale, I give this a 5 <laughs> out of 5. Nostalgia rating is probably like a 3 out of 5, maybe lower, because I don't have a lot of nostalgia. I feel like going forward, I will have more nostalgia for this book because it's really, really good but i do think it's one of those books where like i forget about how good it is yeah. you know like oh, i remember yeah, exactly i remember how good the first one is and that one always sticks with me a lot but this book and i'm sure i'll have the same opinion when we read the third book i didn't remember how good it was and thus mm -hmm. i don't have a lot of nostalgia for it i do remember the third book is the weakest of the three well that's unsurprising yeah that's usually what happens because you know that's how book deals work there was definitely a book deal involved in this because three books three books each written one year after the other yeah and each book wrapped up the main plot and was like Oh yeah, but Mr. Kirchner's still out there. Yeah, which is like very classic children's book. I vibes. like it. It works really well. Each book has like a self-contained narrative, which I love. Yeah. Okay, what are your ratings? Um, my nostalgia rating is going to be a four out of five. I'm going higher because I remember very specific lines of the book. Like I remember the way things were written. I was just like struck by, oh, I have a reading memory of this. Yeah. But I also didn't remember that number two and Mr. Benedict were kidnapped, which is kind of the whole premise. <laughs> Um, so, you know, not that nostalgic, apparently. Mm -hmm. And then my current rating would be a 5 out of 5. I was very pleasantly surprised by this book once again, and it made me want to write. It also made you laugh out loud multiple times. I don't remember that, but cool. You chuckled a lot <laughs> while listening to this book, I think. Are you sure that I wasn't just getting texts while I was reading it? That is also possible. <laughs> yeah, but it really made me want to write and also made me want to look back at that scene where my character jumps off the cliff. Okay. 
Who would you recommend it to? Yes, I think anyone who liked the first book would definitely enjoy this. Mm -hmm. I guess you could read this one first if you wanted to like do that for some reason, but I would recommend reading it after the first one, so. I don't think that there's enough of a recap in this book. There's some, but I don't think yeah. there's quite enough of a recap to be able to understand what's going on completely. Agreed. It so, doesn't yeah. describe what the Whisperer is at all. True. For one thing. That's a good point. But yeah, if you like the first book, I would definitely recommend this one. I would recommend the first book to honestly anyone. It's mm -hmm. one of those books that can be read by adults too. Yeah. It's kind of like how Disney movies have like yeah. jokes for adults. Yeah. This one is definitely a little bit, like I would say that adults would enjoy this one a little bit less, but I think that kids actually might enjoy this one more like I did. Who knows? Because it is more like action heavy. So that, that's yeah. a fairly good point. Yeah. So we took a year in between reading this one and reading the next one. And I actually thought that was kind of cool to read it a year past with the characters too. Aww. So I thought that was cool. And I think it is one of those books where you can let it sit for a little bit and you don't have to rush through the series all in one go. Yes, because it is so memorable. And the books really yeah. can stand on their own, even if, well, they can stand on your, their own in that you can, sometimes you can read a second book and not enjoy it because it's just yes. a filler book. Yes, yeah. It's kind of, it's the type of book, th this entire series I think is the type of thing where after you have read all three of them in order, you can pick up any of them at any point in time. Yes. And like just jump into the world and they work as a standalone at yeah. that point in time. And honestly, I got very excited about this world again. I completely forgot yeah. about this whole deal. It's it's really cool. The sci-fi, just the whole vibe of Mysterious Benedict Society is, it's very unique and I love yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know if sci-fi is like exactly the right way to describe it. It is sci-fi. Well, sci-fi is a very broad definition. It's sci-fi. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> you could almost call it urban sci-fi. Mm, it's like urban mystery sci-fi, I guess, if we had to I would just I would words. just call it sci-fi. I would define it more as like a mysterious children's book. Well, it's not realistic fiction. Yeah, exactly. It's not historical fiction either. It's but it's it's more similar to like like detective stories kind of not really it can be, it can be multiple things exactly. but it's also not really a mystery though it feels like obi game there isn't a mystery though it feels like there OB are puzzles game. but there isn't a mystery there's kind of mystery like what the whole duckworth dusk yeah but that the mystery is not central or important to what actually is going on it's kind of i guess it's like secondary yeah it just it really does feel like obi game to me you can cut that bit out well yeah this book does feel like obi game but in a good way. Yeah, like, like the good parts. I wish our plots would- If I we had the we could... plot of the first book as a game, <laughs> that would be so good. You realize how good of a game that would be? It would be so hard to make happen. We probably wouldn't be able to do brain sweeping for a college situation because it's just a, maybe a little bit too dark. Fucked up, yeah. But No, but also I really, I love the puzzles in these books because they're so good and well thought out. They're really interesting and unique puzzles that we never get to kind of create, you know? Like the whole thing with the wind chimes on the island. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was so cool. Definitely made me miss in-person Obi game. Nothing will ever come close to being in HQ. <laughs> Very true. Okay, so if you were a character in this book, who would you be? Honestly, if I was a character, I would probably be Rennie's adopted mom. What's her name? Miss Permal. Um, Miss Permal, because she's just like a, a good parent tutor person, but also you know like very worried about her child. I know exactly who I would be. Oh God, I would, would be, be Sophie the librarian. 
Oh, she was a really good character. We barely talked about her at all. We barely did, but I would be like her. She is a good representation for Sophie's everywhere. Yeah, she's one of the best Sophie characters that we've read ever, I think, so far on this podcast. Have we read other Sophie characters? There's been one or two, I think. No, we've talked about Sophie from School for Good and Evil, who was awful. And we've talked about Sophie from BFG. I like Sophie from BFG. (laughs) Don't trash on Sophie from BFG. (laughs) No, I think she's great. (laughs) This Sophie is better because she has more personality than Sophie from BFG, but Mm -hmm. still. For context, the Sophie that we're talking about, she is a librarian at the museum that the kids visit, and she helps them escape her awful boss. In a really cool, subtle way. Yeah. And like nice code. It's yeah. cool. Okay. okay. Well, I forgot what happens after ratings and conclusion. We go to the outro. So yeah. <laughs> that's all for this week. Next time we'll be reading Shadow and Bone by I'm sorry if I mispronounced Lee your Bardugo. name. Leah Bardugo. Lee Bardugo. Lee Bardugo? Yes. Okay. Um check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WTKA underscore podcast and at our website, link in description. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Stay away from, from deadly office supplies. supplies. Like really. <laughs> and have a great day. I'm just yeah. saying that number two's taste calls into question what she's into. Oh god. That is what it will say.